Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway, which explores the impact of key political developments on Germany and the United States. Our show is a joint production by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Serhati Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. In the early morning hours of October 7th, Hamas fired thousands of rockets into Israel and stormed many towns and kibbutzim, as well as a music festival. They slaughtered more than 1,400 people, many of them children, women, and the elderly. Some 230 Israelis and foreigners were also taken hostage and brought into Gaza. It was the worst terror incident in the history of Israel and prompted the government there, with U.S. and German backing, to launch an unprecedented operation to wipe out Hamas. The Israeli operation began with massive airstrikes on Gaza, which were followed by tanks and troops entering the Palestinian territory. As a result, many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled to the southern part of the enclave. As of October 31st, the Hamas-run Ministry of Health in Gaza reports more than 8,500 deaths from the war, nearly half of them children. Israel and its backers reject those numbers because they come from Hamas, and they claim they are doing what they can to prevent civilian casualties. Benjamin Netanyahu recently told reporters it is time for countries to decide which side they are on. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war, a war for our common future. Today we draw a line between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism. It is a time for everyone to decide where they stand. Israel will stand against the forces of barbarism until victory. I hope and pray that civilized nations everywhere will back this fight, because Israel's fight is your fight. Because if Hamas and Iran's axis of evil win, you will be their next target. That's why Israel's victory will be your victory. But make no mistake, regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won, and Israel will prevail. But is this war and the justification for it we just heard from the Israeli Prime Minister really that clear? And what could or should the U.S. and Germany be doing about it? Helping us through this difficult quagmire are Hanno Hauenstein, here in the studio, a German journalist who writes op-eds for The Guardian and The Nation, among other publications. Welcome, Hanno. Thank you so much for inviting me. Via Zoom, we are joined by three more guests. In Jerusalem, we have Menachem Klein, a prolific author and professor emeritus at Bar Ilan University, who was an Israeli advisor to the Israel PLO Final Status Talks. Welcome, Menachem. Good evening. From London, we are joined by Hugh Lovett, a senior policy fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations, who advises European policymakers on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Thanks for joining us, Hugh. Hi, thanks for having me. And from Mannheim, we are joined by Palestinian-American journalist and activist Heba Jamal, who writes about Palestinian rights and Islamophobia. Welcome, Heba. Hi, thank you for having me. Let me start with Menachem and Hugh. What is the main takeaway from Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech on October 30th? And we'll start with Hugh. Certainly no one is questioning Israel's right to self-defense. I think any country, as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu alluded to, any country in Israel's position would want to 
to retaliate and to respond. However, Israel's right to self-defense is not an unqualified right that does not give Israel, of course, the right to destroy Gaza and to collectively punish its population, as seems to be the case at the moment, and as some members of the Israeli government have indicated. But secondly, and just as importantly, Netanyahu talked about a war that must be won. It is clear that this is a war that Israel cannot win. There is no military solution, or there is at least no purely military solution to Gaza. Hamas will not be eradicated in general. It will probably not even be uprooted fully from Gaza itself. And so I think we also need to be cognizant that there are limits to what Israel can achieve, uh, merely through the use of armed violence, armed force. Menachem, there's something you want to say about the statement from Netanyahu that we heard at the beginning. It's a post you said that you posted? It is a post in Facebook that I published at the very beginning of this war. Here it is. I am not a neutral. As a citizen of Israel, I hurt and cry with my fellow Israeli citizens, Jews and Arabs, the victims of the barbaric attack of Hamas people. Struggle for national liberation does not justify a crime against humanity and war crimes. Glorifying the murder and abuse of innocent human beings is a repulsive act. I am not a neutral, and therefore, as a human being, I hurt and cry over their killings, injury and destruction of property of the residents of Gaza Strip at the hands of the IDF, the army of my country I am citizen of. No crime justifies another crime. Causing trauma in Gaza Strip will not heal our trauma. Indiscriminate retaliation between those who have to be brought to justice for their actions and those who are not involved in committing a war crime is a moral wrong and a stain on the right of self-defense. The sovereignty and power that the establishment of Israel gave to Jews does not constitute permission for blind revenge, but an opportunity to show that we can defend ourselves in accord with moral standards. That's it. Menachem, what did you take away from it when you heard this speech last night? My take is that Netanyahu sticks to unachievable goals without having any vision for the day after. And unfortunately, that he does not know and he cannot define when the day after starts, when the army operation ends. And he is motivated by one, revenge, and the second, to regain some legitimacy from the Israeli constituency that asked him to express his responsibility for the failure on uh, October 7. The same goes for the IDF generals and the security service. Um, Israeli society is traumatic, definitely traumatic. And even peace activists with whom I maintain contact, WhatsApp and uh, Facebook and other social media, many of them don't know how to digest. And some of them regret, some of them move to the right. So we face a real problem, a real psyche problem inside Israel and the government that lost its way. 
Ebba and Hanno, this question goes to you two. What about the United States and Germany? How have they been responding to the events in Gaza and what should we think about it? I'm going to start, uh, Hebba, with you. I think the response by the United States and Germany is absolutely ridiculous. And unfortunately, I believe it is just completely unjustifiable to not be able to even back a humanitarian ceasefire. The death and murder of 8,000 people is not what democratic, supposedly democratic nations should be advocating for. Over the last 75 years, we've seen just an expansion of legal settlements in the West Bank and a siege on Gaza that has been extremely suffocating. And instead of addressing those realities and addressing why October 7th even happened, the United States and Germany is unconditionally backing Israel and the massacre of the Palestinian people. Hanno, what do you think? What do you see as the implications of Germany and the U.S. position here? Well... I can first and foremost speak to Germany and the response Germany has been giving to um, these developments. And I think firstly, um, like I want to resonate with what Heba already said, that like there should be a human rights consensus that is very much in question at the moment, uh, given those responses. There can be no kind of uh, unquestioned support of killing civilians or taking into account the killing of civilian lives, as we've seen over the last weeks. And I think if, you know, this is one thing, I do support a ceasefire at this point, And I think it's very much like the notion we should put forward. But at the same time, I think like if we zoom out a little bit, like what has been very visible in the German public, there's no question whatsoever that October 7th, the massacre that has been committed by Hamas was a war crime and something that should be unconditionally condemned. But I think there's a tendency within the German public to sort of um, start the clock right there. And I think that's in and of itself, like a reductionist view of the situation. I think we need to question that view and really think about the question, where do we start the clock? Do we start it in October 7th in, you know, 2005, when the blockade and siege of uh, effective occupation of Gaza has begun? Do we start it in 67 or in 48? You know, these are the kind of questions that are always kind of like coming into play here. And I think at the moment, what we're seeing, again, is a very reductionist view that has been portrayed both by public representatives in Germany and partly... This is kind of a self-critique, you know, in a way, to the media as well. I think that the German media has a lot of room <laughs> for development uh, regarding Israel-Palestine in terms of, like, really factoring in the kind of, like, political and historical kind of nuances that are often not seen. Abba, a follow-up to that. I mean, Hanno mentioned where you start the clock. So there have been past incursions also into Gaza or operations launched also in the West Bank by Israel. Is the response different this time from Germany and the United States to this uh, war that Israel's waging? I think yes and no. I think for, you know, again, since Israel's inception, uh, Germany and the United States has been pretty much, for the most part, um, supportive of Israel and its actions. There doesn't seem to be a red line, even if in theory they're against the expansion of settlements. However, in Germany, I have definitely seen a huge curtailment of Palestinian civil rights here, you know, or even just pro-Palestinians, not just Palestinians. People who express any sort of criticism is immediately shut down, fired, or even sometimes arrested. What we're seeing right now from Germany is unprecedented. In the United States, 66% of Americans have called for a ceasefire. There was a poll done and 66% of Americans supported a humanitarian ceasefire and their own politicians have not even 
considered their constituents. And I think there's a very clear kind of um, line between the regular people who are trying to express their grief, their mourning, and their governments who do not seem to care at all about what their people are advocating for. Hugh, what about the EU in this situation? Do all of the member states agree with the German government response, or where do the divisions fall? As usual, the EU was divided amongst its 27 member states. We started off following the atrocious violence on October 7th with a very strong EU solidarity in support of Israel, Israeli people, and Israel's right to self-defense. As was expected, nonetheless, we started to see divisions emerge, firstly in terms of the extent to which Israel should abide by international law in its response. Some countries have um, underscored that need to abide by international law much more loudly than others. And now the second source of division is this question of the need for humanitarian ceasefire or pause, however one wants to, to characterize it. But what I would also add, which is quite important, is yes, Germany has staked out a, a very clear position and is perhaps seen as being one of the most supportive of Israel's positions. But Germany is not the country that is the most supportive. It is not the country that has actually tried to water down EU language in Israel's favor. And those countries are actually uh, first and foremost Austria. So I think we do need to hold this in perspective. And again, we saw that in the results of the UN General Assembly vote, where you had some countries that uh, voted in favor of the resolution, some that abstained, such as Germany. And then you had a few EU member states, such as the Czech Republic and Austria, that uh, voted against it. Menachem, just to go back to the clock point that Hanno raised, it's been 30 years since the Oslo Accords were signed. How is the Israeli-Palestinian relationship different now than it was then? I mean, were the Netanyahu government and various Palestinian factions even talking before October 7th? First, Oslo Agreement was not a peace treaty. It was an interim agreement on limited autonomy. With the failure of Camp David 2000 and the Israeli reoccupation of the West Bank in 2002 and the destruction of the Palestinian Authority, Oslo Agreement is dead. A new regime was established in 2005 when Israel led Mahmoud Abbas to succeed Arafat under the precondition that he will be a subcontractor for Israeli security. What we saw in the last year is that also the new order established by Israel in 2005 is over. It started in Northwest Bank with armed groups against Abu Mazen and used arms against settlers and Israeli soldiers. And then came Hamas attack. Hamas attack destroyed the order that Netanyahu governments try to establish and stick to, which is a one-state reality between Jordan and the Mediterranean and dividing the Palestinians into five groups, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, those who are outside the PA areas and those who are within the PA areas. Netanyahu said that conflict resolution is over. We don't need conflict resolution. I know how to manage the conflict and deal with Abu Mazen according to my perspective. 
And also he signed normalization agreements with Arab countries in the periphery. Everything collapsed. And so he bypassed, he bypassed the Palestinians. He wasn't talking to them and he completely bypassed them is what you're saying. Yeah, he wanted to bypass them and he was very happy with the international community remaining outside the Middle East and not dealing with conflict resolution and two-state solution and so on. The message to the Israelis and the Palestinians was, it's your problem. Okay, it's not our problem. We have other things more urgent, for instance, the war in Ukraine and other issues. So, okay, we leave the area. Now, all this collapse. Conflict management is over. The international community concludes that it must re-interest and involve in the area. The conflict spill over from Gaza to the West Bank and to the Israeli-Lebanon border. And also between Israel and the Houthis in, in Yemen, with a danger to spill over and become a regional conflict. So we live in a different situation, totally different situation. And once again, the two-state solution is, is back. The international leaders once again mentioned that the two-state solution is the only way to solve the conflict. So uh, now that uh, Menachem brought it up, Heba, what do you think? Do you think the two-state solution is now back on the table? or Do are... Palestinians even want it? Yeah, I mean, do Palestinians want it? Will they want it more? Will they want it less? What does that look like now? I think the two-state solution has been dead for a very, very long time. And I think the only feasible solution would be a one-state solution where everyone has equal rights. It is not run by right-wing fascists who... You know, and it is not an ethno state. I think that is the only solution for the Palestinian people and the only one that they will accept. The concept that they're not able to live in a democracy, an equal democracy with multi faiths and multicultures, I think it is absolutely wrong to assume that. And since Israel's inception and since you know, the apartheid regime and, and the occupation and the siege on Gaza, the demand has always been the same. A free Palestine, a one-state solution for all people with equal rights. Anything else, I think it would be unacceptable. Okay, Hugh, uh, what about you? What do you think? Um, I mean, do you agree with Menachem that now the two-state solution is back in everyone's minds? To a certain extent, I'm agnostic. And I actually think it's an academic <laughs> um, conversation. I mean, this is a, me trying to, to avoid answering the, the difficult question. But the reasons for which I think it's academic is that neither a one-state solution with full rights nor a two-state solution with full rights for both people is currently attainable. To me, what is important is actually the strategy. So the Oslo peace process was a strategy to reach a political objective, which was a two-state solution. I would prefer to have a conversation about what does a new strategy look like. I agree with what Menachem said, is that the Oslo paradigm that we've been living in is now over. Yes, there's some of the structures it puts in place still exist, such as the Palestinian Authority, at least for now, you know, areas A, B, and C. You know, Obviously, some of those structures are still there. But as a political strategy to end the conflict, Oslo failed. So there is a need to rethink the strategy. Yes, at some point, the conflict will have to be ended through negotiations. But to me, the focus is on how do you create the foundations that can allow for future negotiations to be successful. And there's a 
Israeli side of that equation in terms of how do you incentivize uh, Israelis to end the occupation, to view an end of occupation to be in their best national security interests, which is not currently the case. How do you work with the Palestinian side of the equation to be able to reform the Palestinian national movement, to have a Palestinian leadership that has the authority and the legitimacy and the ability to negotiate a future agreement with Israel? To me, that should be the focus. Hanno, I'm actually going to take you back to Germany for a moment um, because we touched on it, but we haven't talked in great detail mm-hmm. about the oppression um, or the suppression, I should say, of any sort of pro-Palestinian protests that are going on. And you recently wrote about this for The Nation. Right. So why do you think German authorities and German society, for that matter, or much of German society is doing this or is in favor of this? Well, it's a complicated issue to sum up in one sentence, but clearly the obvious answer... You can have it two sentences. Right, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The obvious answer is that Germany, for given its like brutal anti-Semitic history, it still translates today into factual anti-Semitism that we have in Germany that is not, as often suggested, only in quote-unquote imported uh, phenomenon, but is something that is very much prevalent within German society. Over 80% uh, of anti-Semitic acts are committed by right-wing groups in this country. Nevertheless, like given this history, Germany is, and I think for good reasons, very sensitive to the question of anti-Semitism and um the expressions of anti-Semitism, but I think there's a somewhat kind of conflation going on that is playing out not only in the question of like pro-Palestinian protests, but also in culture and in other spheres of German society um, when it comes to the critique of um, the acts of Israeli governments, um, the entrenched uh, occupation of the Palestinian people uh, in versus uh, actual anti-Semitism. And I think, you know, right now what we're seeing in 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 the last three weeks. At this point, the policy, at least locally in Berlin, has changed to a degree. Like there have actually been like um, rallies that were allowed that have not been, you know, completely blanketly banned as we've seen in the beginning. But I do think that there has been a very disproportionate kind of crackdown on, as Heba has has said before, on, on any sort of expression of like mourning or critique of like the absolutely in proportionate like response of the Israeli government on Gaza like what we've seen should wake everyone up you know it should call people to the streets and it also I do think that it very much like causes to question the legitimacy of humanitarian law or at, le- at least the way in which like Germany and other countries in the west have applied humanitarian law in a very sort of selective manner but you mentioned this earlier so I want to bring it also back to you i mean what would you want to add to what hanno said Sure. I I think ever since, you know, 2008, when, you know, Germany officially declared that Israel's national security was their reason of state, I think what it created was an environment where because of Germany's past, what they are doing is being vehemently pro-Israel at the expense of anyone who is against that position. I mean, just looking at the past few weeks, we had the chancellor say that he wants to um, deport, you know, quote unquote, anti-Semites and actually introduced a legislation that could easily deport asylum seekers, um, you know, that he believes are from states that would support terrorism, for example. You had the Berlin Senate specifically ban stickers of free Palestine in schools and say that students are not allowed to wear the kofia or wear the colors of the Palestinian flag. And if they do, the teacher has the right to call the cops on them. I mean, we're seeing 
in Germany this very very troubling examples of again curtailment of human rights and and what's interesting is that Germany believes that they're kind of the owners of Holocaust discourse. And so if a Jewish person says that they are anti-Zionist or they are someone who is critical of the state of Israel, they will also be silenced. We have seen time and time again of Jewish Israelis in Berlin across Germany who express criticisms of the state and who felt the same amount of suppression as would a Palestinian. So this isn't even about, um, you know, stopping anti-Semitism. This is about describing about what it means to be a citizen. What does it mean to even be a good Jewish person, actually? You have anti-Semitism commissioners who call Jewish people anti-Semitic for their stances on Israel. It is it's a phenomenal place and phenomenal time to live and to be right now. Menachem, on the other side of the issue, we saw horrific scenes in an airport in Dagestan recently. How concerned are you about the global backlash and rising anti-Semitism over Gaza? Will it leave Israel more isolated globally? It seems so that uh, Israel is isolated and the discourse inside Israel is very different than the discourse outside Israel. The Israelis are in a mental bunker and not putting enough attention to criticism that is raised outside Israel in the United States, West Europe, the Muslim world. And regarding anti-Semitism, first I would like to know that modern anti-Semitism or the present anti-Semitism is very different than classical anti-Semitism. There are no arguments uh, that you crucify Jesus or you uh, sacrifice young Christian boys for Passover festival. That's over. The modern anti-Semitism, current anti-Semitism is about Israeli policy. And unfortunately, the Israeli government does not take seriously the anti-Semitism raised outside Israel when it plans its reactions against the Palestinians or its policy in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The situation is as following. Israel argues that the state of Israel is a Jewish state or the state of all Jews elsewhere. And all Jews elsewhere are potential citizens and they should come to Israel. And then who pays the cost of Israeli uh, policy? Jews abroad also pay for Israeli policy. Israel must take the Jews abroad and their exposure to anti-Semitism and attacks, physical or verbal or political, into its consideration. It's not done, not enough, unfortunately. This is part of the arrogance of the Israeli Jewish perception that we know much better than the Jews outside how to react, how to deal with the Palestinians. They are weak. They should come here and so on. Underestimating the Jews outside. The Jews outside Israel has full right to have their own opinion. And Israel must listen to them. Half of the Jews globally are not in Israel. The future of the Jewish people is in the hands of the state of Israel, at least partly. So I'm afraid that this is not in the forehead of the Israeli decision makers. 
So Menachem, is destroying Hamas, as Prime Minister Netanyahu has said uh, is the goal, is that even a feasible goal? Unachievable. It's a wishful thinking. Underestimating what Hamas is as an organization, uh, as an administration, and as representing wishes and political program that is rooted of refugees' return, of resisting Israel, that is rooted inside the Palestinian political community. So it cannot be uprooted. You know, everyone who voted for Hamas or is a member in Hamas administration in Gaza Strip cannot take part in any future government or administration of rebuilding Gaza Strip. It's nonsense. And Israel should look what happened in West Germany, who built, rebuilt West Germany after Second World War. It was done by those who were Nazi party members, uh, not senior, not operators, but still. So eliminating totally Hamas as an administration, it will be a huge mistake. As far as I understand, President Biden tried to convince the Israeli war cabinet not to repeat the American wrongs in Iraq. They destroyed the Ba'ath Party apparatus, and it was a nightmare for the Americans, and they left Iraq. Iraq is broken. This is a counterproductive for Israel if the Palestinians are totally broken. Israel cannot rule the Palestinians. The Palestinians will resist Israel. They have many reasons why to resist Israel. Most of them are justified. They want independence. They want self-rule. Israel cannot stay for long in, in Gaza Strip. I am afraid that Israel is repeating its strategy that it implemented, Israel implemented an 82 war in Lebanon. Just to remind you, in Lebanon, the is Israel occupied South Lebanon up to Beirut, imposed on the weak parliament to elect Bashir Jumayel as a president, hoping that Bashir will sign peace treaty with Israel, expel the PLO and the Palestinians to Jordan, and they will topple King Hussein and establish the Palestinian state. This was the grand design that Israel hoped to implement in Lebanon. How it ended, we all know. Total collapse and total failure. This cannot work. What Israel got instead is Hezbollah in Lebanon, in South Lebanon, a bitter enemy to Israel. Israel cannot let it go the same in Gaza Strip or in the West Bank and both. Hugh, um, shortly before October 7th, actually, you wrote a paper um, about this for ECFR. What should happen in Gaza if Hamas is routed or pushed from power, who should be in charge and who should rebuild? Well, that's that's a really tough question. We only as give the tough saying, questions to you, Hugh. <laughs> well, as we've been saying, I'm really not certain Hamas will be totally routed. So I think it will continue to exist for all the reasons that we talked about, at least, you know, in terms of a social movement and to a degree with an armed presence. And so the very real possibility is whoever goes back in may face a Hamas insurgency. But putting that aside to answer your question in terms of if Hamas is actually removed, who comes in? The problem is there are no real uh, answers at present. Clearly, Israel does not want to rule 
uh, Gaza does not want to directly reoccupy it and have to involve itself in governing what will be a, a, a broken population and a broken strip in a profoundly catastrophic social economic crisis. Israel does not want to take responsibility for that. The second option is the Palestinian Authority. Now, in some ways, that might be the least worst option. However, the Palestinian Authority, as it currently is, is extremely weak and has very little popular legitimacy. It would be almost impossible to imagine that President Mahmoud Abbas could ride back into Gaza on the back of an Israeli Merkava tank. And PA officials have said that, <laughs> that do so would be seen to be uh, an Israeli subcontractor, which is what the PA is already accused of. Now, I think there is an alternative scenario where the PA could do this in a better fashion, but that would require, I think, very profound transformations in terms of how the PA uh, is represented and how it governs. It would have to be much more representative of Palestinians to reclaim that legitimacy to allow it to go in, which leads us into another discussion um, in terms of how it would do that. And one of the last options is the option of internationalization. So the possibility that there could be a UN mandate, as it were, or that there could be an international peacekeeping force that could go into Gaza and administer it. Now, there's practical reasons why that probably cannot happen. But I think there is also a risk that to do so would be falling into a trap, would be to effectively take over governing the Strip on Israel's behalf in circumstances in which uh, the siege which has been on Gaza for uh, 16 years now remains. So in effect, you would be replacing Hamas with another governing authority without actually tackling the underlying issues that have trapped Gaza into what has ultimately been an unsustainable status quo and that has led us into this tragedy. Heba, that was a rather bleak picture. Um, do you have anything to add in terms of who you think the Palestinians would want to run their transitional government if Hamas was routed from Gaza? I mean, Hamas was, as I understand, not that popular before October 7th. Is there something that the Palestinians would want or not want? Um, I think that majority of Palestinians living in Gaza and even the West Bank might have differences in terms of the political options, but I, I doubt any of them actually would vehemently be against, you know, an armed group, an armed Palestinian group, what they see as, a, you know, a resistance group, a militant resistance group. Secondly, I, I agree with you, it's impossible right now to get rid of Hamas because I... I, I, I'm not, I'm not even, I feel like we're just having these, I'm sorry, I'm just in a position where we're having these theoretical conversations. And I, you know, was just reading on the 300 people massacred in a single blow at Jabadia refugee camp. So I'm not even currently in the correct mindset to answer such a question. I think the Palestinian people should vote who they believe should run Gaza. That's my answer. If it's not Hamas, it's who they vote for. And I feel like this is such a radical answer nowadays to seemingly want democracy for the Palestinian people. They have not been able to vote since 2006. And that's when in 2006 they voted Hamas. And so, oh, of course, um, Israel and the PA will never let them vote again, essentially. Um, and unfortunately, that's the reality that we have come to is, you know, talking about who should lead the Palestinians as if it's not the Palestinian people who should vote for it and speak for themselves about who should lead them. Um, I'm sorry for, again, such a 
such a direct and bleak answer, but but I, I just kind of want to put a more human conversation to this because I feel like we're talking theory and politics and history. Um, we're not realizing that these are actually people that are smart and capable and able to determine who can lead them. I, I agree with him. I, I would like to follow her. Uh, I do think that elections, Palestinian elections in Gaza Strip and the West Bank should be the first thing immediately after ceasefire and exchange of prisoners of war. Once again, let's take the 82-83 war lessons in Lebanon. The Americans and the French suffered many casualties in, in Lebanon. I don't assume that they will be very happy to stay for months in uh, Lebanon. So international management to rescue or to hold the Gaza Strip for a very short period and manage the elections there, it's reasonable that they will agree. But elections must be one of the first issues on the agenda, general elections also in the West Bank. This can re-legitimize the Palestinian Authority, but only after prisoners exchange. I assume that Marwan Barghouti will be released and run in the elections. Okay, and then Hugh, you wanted to add something? Yes, I just wanted to violently agree with what was said. And I gave very bleak scenarios. And <laughs> it is a tragedy that the future for Gaza, at least as, as far as we can see of the short, the medium term, is going to be one of, of bleakness and, and suffering and tragedy. But we should not lose sight of what are the core requirements for a better future for Gaza and ultimately a better future for Israelis, uh, whose security depends on stability in Gaza. And the three requirements, as far as I see it, is firstly, ending Israel's siege, Secondly, reconnecting Gaza to the West Bank. And then thirdly, and most importantly, how to respect, to encourage Palestinian agency that ultimately is Palestinians that must determine the way forward in terms of not just in terms of how Gaza's future should look, but also in terms of how best to fulfill their right to self-determination. These are three things that are difficult to imagine at the moment, but they are, the, in my view, the three most important things that we should keep hold of as we move forward and try to find a, a sustainable political vision. Yes, thanks, Hugh, for that. I mean, I do think we would be remiss if we don't mention, and Hugh, you or Heba, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think it was also Hamas that didn't want more elections. So it wasn't only external factors. It was also that once elected, they didn't, they weren't that interested in a democratic referendum later. So this is an additional challenge. Yeah, I mean, but we need to be clear, again, this is not excusing everything that Hamas is and what it's done, and, and also to, to gloss over the complexities of the internal conversation within the movement. But I would push back a bit and say that Hamas, in my view, was genuine in terms of wanting to participate in the 2021 national elections that were ultimately cancelled by President Abbas. They wanted to do this not because they're Democrats, but because, because they saw in elections the potential political means to achieve their core interests, which is first and foremost to extract themselves from what they see as the trap of governance in Gaza. Ultimately, that failed. And one of the consequences, in my view, was this eruption of violence as the military wing took over the movement and made the argument that only violence, extreme violence, could break the current status quo. 
we're running over time here, so I just want to put the last question to Hanno. <laughs> and uh, this is hopefully going to be an uplooking one. I don't know, but we'll see. It's, it's, it's a very difficult conversation, and I appreciate uh, the concerns about it being theoretical and about, you know, just trying to capture what really is happening at the moment. So thank you for that, Heba. The question is, what should or could Germany and the United States be doing right now to end the war that they're not? What should or could they be doing? Well, maybe I can start sort of like answering it like ex negativo, you know, kind of like saying what they shouldn't be doing is sort of <laughs> giving carte blanche, which is what has been happening up to now. There's been one or two statements for the bettering of the conditions of the people in Gaza and so on and so forth. At the same time, both Germany and the United States are supplying not only symbolic, but also very much material support to Israel in reassuring its right to quote unquote defend itself by indiscriminately killing people in Gaza. So I think this is like something that like Germany and the US should not be doing. And at the same time, I think, you know, there have been both within Palestine, the Palestinian society and within Israel, countless of actors um, within the civil society. I very much, you know, from my experience of having lived and worked in Israel, I often mirror the Israeli perspective somewhat more strongly. Maybe Haba can shed light more on the Palestinian part, but you know, there are people like, Organizations like Shoverim Shtika, Breaking the Silence, um, Combatants for Peace, all these kind of groups that like have been identifying tendencies of entrenching occupation within the West Bank and the siege of Gaza for decades. And they have been calling, uh, you know, the international community to act for years and decades as well. Germany has never, you know, explicitly called the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza illegal. It has always kind of condemned settlement policies and said this is um, somewhat uh, stopping peace, but it has never explicitly called the occupation illegal. The ICJ has been like a, a legal um, kind of um, comprehensive um, process going on to determine whether the occupation can be called illegal or not. This will have far-reaching consequences if to come that all of this happened before October 7th. Germany has refused to give its assessment to that. Um, many have argued that this might have been like a move that was in, you know, mirrored by the weapons deal that has been going on, the Arrow 3 deal. In many ways, there's a lot of room for improvement for Germany to simply take civil society seriously. And I'm, I'm not only speaking about the left within Israel, which is like a very sort of like small and comprised force, but even like the liberal center that has been protesting in the streets against like uh, Israel's judicial overhaul for the last 40 weeks longer before October 7th. These are voices that one has to take incredibly seriously and, and, you know, bring into the picture. Like, I think we need to stop right now to support the most right-wing government in Israel's history. Members have been voicing genocidal sort of uh, tendencies for months in, in the past. And again, like the Israeli civil society and large parts of the Palestinian civil society have been identifying those tendencies for a long time. I think that's really the way to go to bring those people to the forefront. I'm, I'm happy, you know, this round here, even the fact that we have Heba as a representative of the Palestinian people is very uncommon in the German context. It, it often doesn't happen at all. And people normalize this kind of exclusion as something completely okay. And I, I think that's bizarre to me in many levels, but I think it's very good that we're doing this, that we're not repeating this mistake in, in this podcast. But yeah, I think there's a lot of room for improvement here. Well, we unfortunately have to leave it there. Our guests are journalist Hanno Hauenstein here in Berlin, professor and author Menachem Klein of Bar Ilyan University, 
journalist Hebe Jamal in Mannheim and Hugh Lovett of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for organizing this. It was great. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi-Nelson. Thanks for listening to our 15th episode. Transatlantic Takeaway is a joint production by the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground, Berlin. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media intern is Maya Ravlik. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. All Transatlantic Takeaway and Common Ground Berlin episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.